This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome. Thanks to everyone joining us from around the world. I'm Darren Mack. I'm an advocate and organizer working to decarcerate and dismantle the carceral system. I was incarcerated for 19 years, 11 months, and 28 So like I was saying, the Attica Liberation Faction Manifesto outlines several of these demands. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Um, the Attica Liberation Faction Manifesto outlines several of these demands. The right to a minimal wage, the end of prison slavery, even the right to unionize. 13 Forward is a coalition of workers, rights activists, directly impacted advocates, um, advocacy, advocacy organizations that <laughs> and the minimum workers. The campaign is work rises, color change, and legal aid. Today, September 13 marks the 49th anniversary of the massacre at Attica State Prison and is the day that incarcerated men and women honor their legacy. 13 Forward is a name that also invokes the disastrous exception of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery with the exception that it could be used in prison. The result of this loophole that has allowed for modern state slavery to dominate the carceral system, that was the result. And New York State, as elsewhere, work is coerced through the threat of solitary confinement or revoked visitation. And it is done for pennies while the state continues to profit from off the human exploitation. So late labor conditions have been a central demand of prison uprising the year before Attica to the 2018 uh, national prison strike as incarcerated people everywhere fight for a liberatory vision of human dignity. Today, we honor that and seek to use this day to deepen our understanding of the, the legacy for which organizers and advocates fight for true labor rights depend on. 13 Forward will be rolling out, out a series of bills that seek to abolish prison slavery and implement a real minimum wage in New York. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers. We are joined by some incredible, brilliant panelists of scholars, activists, and advocates. Osami Burton, a professor of anthropology at American University. We have Robin McGitney, a former incarcerated scholar, PhD student, and have Amani Davis, the director of the Omowali Project and daughter of Jomo Omowali. So thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, so to give some historical context 
Uh, we're going to begin with you, Maury. So give us some context of what is occurring in New York jails and prisons, you know, that leads up to Attica uprising. You know, we had a so a really lively discussion previously. It was so loud, which it was recorded. <laughs> As the young people say, it was lit. <laughs> and so I'm going to let this go organic as well. You know, I'm not going to ask too many questions. I'm going to pass it back to Philip and Dr. Chimes. Corey, I'm going to leave it up to you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, well, as you mentioned, the formal emergence of the Attica Rebellion is on September 9th, 1971. But if we were to try to like trace back an origin point of the struggle, we could, you know, we could go a day earlier to uh, the moment where there was a fight in which um, captives were uh, brutalized. We could go earlier than that and look at the assassination of George Jackson, which was a, a major turning point. Um, we could go earlier to November of 1970 when captives in Auburn prison engaged in a collective rebellion, which was largely inspired around um, questions of labor broadly defined. Um, we could go a month earlier than that and look at the New York City jail rebellions, which emerged in, in, in um, August of 1970, or in July, back in, 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 in Attica in July of 1970, uh, where captives engaged in a, uh, a labor strike in the, in the prison metal shop, right? And then we could even go beyond that and then think about the different kinds of movements that were happening in California. We could think about global struggles for decolonization. Um, and so if we continue to trace the origin point of Attica backwards and really try to think about sort of how this kind of Black-led multiracial insurgency developed, you know, we could easily work our way back to like the Haitian Revolution or something like that. I mean, literally, right? I mean, and that's how the people who are engaged in the struggle conceptualize their struggle as as the culmination um, and as a key point in a, really a centuries long battle against colonization and racial slavery. Um, and so the immediate conditions that gave rise to Attica have, you know, a number of important Contexts, including intense racist repression, including um, an emerging consciousness of incarcerated people and black and brown people in the United States as colonial subjects. And so if they understood themselves as colonial subjects, then the methodology of liberation is a methodology of decolonization, including tactics of decolonial and anti-colonial warfare. And so this is what they were thinking about and talking about um, in the lead up to the rebellion. Uh, that. Um, so I want to go to Imani next. Imani, so, you know, you're a writer, a healer, activist. Your father, Jomo, was a central figure of the Attica uprising from the writings of the demands to the legal battle that followed in its aftermath. Could you talk a little about to the audience, a little about you know, your father, who he was, his character, and, 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 and just you know, 
just let us know like you know who Joma was. Okay. Who Joma was in 30 seconds or less. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, when we were prepping for this call, I shared with uh with my fellow panelists that, you know, my experience of my dad is much more like any daughter than um than how one might talk about him or how he's been written about or spoken about um, in the books. You know, my father um, actually, for most of my life, did not speak about Attica. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up with my father mostly in prison. He spent 25 years in prison. Um, he was captured when I was six and came home just before my 31st birthday. And um, it actually wasn't until I was caring for him later in his life, once he was home, that I actually even really began to understand the physical toll that Attica had taken on him. But one of the things that is interesting is that one of my favorite things to do when I was on a visit was to show my father's inner arm where there was this skin that was really, really, really silky and smooth, almost like a burn. And I referred to it as the gravel um, that I love to rub and relax as I was on a visit. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I actually understood that what I was feeling was buckshot. Um, and I actually thought of it as the gravel. It was like this beautiful, bumpy, smooth skin that just used to relax me on a visit um, back when we weren't being, you know, pressured around not having any real contact during visits. And so for me, um, I think, you know, who my father was, my father was one of the most generous and gracious human beings I've ever met. And at the same time, my father had a love for our people that, um, that, that to this day, I'm not sure that I have met people who I think encompass that purpose and responsibility for the liberation um, of actualization of their people. And I feel that um, one of the things that, that I'm always struck by when I think about Attica is, is that um, it is actually very strange. My father has often been spoken about, you know, like all of the brothers um, have often spoken about as being these violent characters who took this violent approach. Um, and honestly, I'm actually struck when we have been able to uncover all of what they went through. Um, I'm actually struck at the amount of restraint that they showed and the way they, um, sorry, my daughter just walked me. Um, I'm actually struck by how much they endured and how generous they were that they actually drafted uh, man's and were willing to have a conversation. Um, wasn't imminent until their needs weren't met, right? That there was this whole my father was. I never saw him choose violence or even choose aggression. Um, I always watched my father have a lot of um, in the prison environment, even when he was being spoken to as a child, even when he was being told that his visit was being cut short. I always watched my dad um, use his energy and his grace to encourage people to respond to his request. And um, I, I always center that in the conversation about Attica because I feel that there's always, that, that there's, because it was such a violent uh, day, that there's often this focus on the men doing this thing that then that then or equal. And I just, that's not what I believe or know about Attica. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for that. 
sure that Morgan and Robbie will have a lot of sense now, but let's go to Robin. So Robin, about power. You know, this year, the New York State, New York has made like $65 million over prison labor, but profit is not the central function of prison labor. So, you know, we spoke about power, you know, the last time it was uh, was talking. And, like, can you talk about this, like, particularly in the context of women? Well, I have a slightly different take in terms of, and we talked about this in terms of when we were preparing for this call. So when I think of labor, I don't necessarily, and it's not the either or, but I think of it um, as a reimagination because just as Imani was speaking about her dad and all of those brothers who were there, for me, it is this notion of a labor of livingness. So even when we, that refutes, the prison itself, right? Um, as as I said previously, as a site of living death. And so even the demands, so out of uh, several of the demands, um, I had it written down, I'm so sorry. Eight of the 27 demands were directly related to labor, like um, in terms of wage labor or whatever. But these guys, these brothers, what demanding to be able to live, dignity. Uh, and so that is the labor uh, and it ties directly with my work. Um, so this idea for profit, or whatever, because we know that um, basically people, women included, are being warehoused. And so this gets into surplus populations and how do you squeeze some profit out of nothingness, if you will. Um, so I just have a slightly different take on it. And I think it obliges us really to uh, think about this historical black freedom struggle. So it does not exist in a silo. So when Imani was talking about, you know, those are the wounds, those are the scars in terms of his, uh, how would you say this, um, desire, if you will, to live. And I think overall, when we look at these demands, that's essentially what we're talking about. Um, this idea of wage labor, unwaged labor, the reproduction of labor. Um, but I think um, it's really about this desire to live. How do we live the prison? You were incarcerated for any number of years. Um, how do you live the prison? So one of my committee members was, well, we always hear about endurance, perseverance, resiliency, so on. But we need to um, dig a little deeper than those familiar tropes. So again, I would posit it as a labor of livingness. Can I breathe? Can I live? Um, so when Amani, when you were talking about your dad, um, the other day, it was just, and when he was transitioning, he was still, he was laboring to live, even though the transition was at the door. I mean, he was getting ready to walk through the door. But this is, so I think that we really, um, we have to reimagine what labor is, or how do we think about that broadly in that way. 
If I could jump in, I really appreciate um, that, Robin. And just to put the labor question in context in relation to, to Attica, right? Um, you know, the, the first thing I think we should understand is that, you know, the Attica brothers and all of the people who were trying to figure out how to get free within conditions right. of slavery, right? They were engaged prior to the revolts. They were engaged in a protracted period of study and investigation in trying exactly. to figure out how they could exert some collective power through, within, and against the prison. And so one of those sort of um, points of um, struggle that they identified was the question of labor, right? But it wasn't about profit, okay? So we got to be careful right. about the terms we use, right? Um, profit is the amount of money you make above that which is invested in the process. Historically, pr public prisons don't generate profit. They do generate revenue, but those labor programs tend to cost more than they make. So they actually operate at a loss, right? So I did research on Corecraft, which is New York's um, industrial labor program, and found that between 1980 and 1996, it operated at a $47 million loss. So these programs actually cost money. What, what they're doing is they're trying to actually um, enable prisons to be uh, self-sufficient, right? The labor is deployed in order to keep the prisons going. And right. the brothers at the time knew this, right? So Lumumba Shakur, who's a member of, who's a member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, um, he was in the New York City jail rebellions of 1970. His brother in 1970, after the jail rebellion, wrote the following about labor and rebellion. Quote, we say that prisoners themselves can do away with the prison system. In order for prisons to exist, it actually entails the participation of the inmates. They are responsible for the running of the prisons with the exception of being guards and wardens. They take care of all the administrative work, the cooking, the cleaning, they make shoes, they upkeep the grounds. If the guards came to them one day and said, all right, come out of yourself for a head count, and they refused, then penal society in this country would collapse. And so incarcerated people identified labor as a point through which they could exercise power and say, okay, well, what would happen if we withdraw our labor? How could that create a sort of crisis point, right, um, within the, the carceral system? And so that's what they began to do. So as I mentioned, in July of 1970, more than a year before the rebellion, Several of the Black Panthers in Attica engaged in a strike in Attica's metal shop. They were subsequently punished and transferred to Auburn, where many of those same brothers engaged in a labor strike in Auburn. In Auburn, they produced license plates for the entire state of New York. They had a tobacco packing plant where they packed the cigarettes that were sent to all the prisons in the state. Um, they had, a, uh, I think it was a, a manufacturing shop for uniforms that were used in the state. So their theory was, okay, let's withdraw our labor and see if we can create a crisis situation within the prison system. So I think that's one of the ways, but, but I fully agree with Robin's point that there are these other dimensions of labor, right? Both the affective, 
um, social, creative, political, intellectual labor that we also have to fold into this uh, conversation. Imani, Robin, thoughts? You want mute, Imani? Imani, Robin, thoughts? Can you hear me, Can you hear me now? Um, Can hear you. I actually don't have them as it relates to what um, what was just shared, but I think what's really powerful about the language that Robin continues to bring in is this conversation around reimagining. And one of the things that, you know, given the fact that Attica, the, um, the remembrance of Attica has been a part of my life for my entire life, obviously, because I'm not 49 years old. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is I've entered into this phase and as my father has transitioned and I've been left to kind of figure out what was the next move. And I did launch Omawali in reaction to that, right? That I knew that the work of our people was actually to begin to heal so that we could be moving from a place of overflow and not from a place of wound. And so when you talk about reimagining, one of the things that just came to me as I was listening to Robin was that we actually have the power to reimagine our conversation and narrative around Attica. And um, we haven't. We've really continued. This is the first time we're, that I'm remembering being in a conversation around labor, which is interesting, right? We're creating a somewhat different perspective and relating it to today and watching the ways in which um, incarcerated people all around the country have been exercising their, their voices. Uh, but it also really allows me to imagine the fact that this whole conversation about Attica could actually be told through it being a huge act of love, right? Mm -hmm. Because because right. what happened that day was that the men um, were willing to lose their lives and, and offer their bodies um, for the belief in the hope that people who would come to prison, even if the goal was obviously to not have prison, that, that the conditions would be different. They were willing to put their lives on the line and die for something that they knew that they may never actualize in their lifetime. And if that's not love, I don't know what is, because that is really the laboring of bringing children into the world, right? Is, is creating a life for them and a vision and a future for them that you may never get to fully see, right? And so um, as we talk about Attica and remember Attica almost 50 years, right? It's just amazing to me that we, all of us, um, in response to COVID, in response to this current moment, that we're all reimagining what life looks like and the ways in which we could fold Attica into that, right? That we could really change the way that we look at it. We talk about it as resistance and rebellion, but ultimately it was a stand, right? It was a stand for possibility. And it was this moment of unique liberation of these men being willing to leverage themselves, their voices, their bodies, being fully aligned in one direction, even though they had come into prison with so many different experiences, racial backgrounds, criminal backgrounds, like everything about them was different. And in that moment, they were one. And we can't even accomplish that <laughs> on the street um, now, <laughs> 49 years later. So I think that it's so important to really look at that alignment. One of the things that Ori pointed out was like the ways in which they studied. That was probably one of the things um, that was most powerful about my dad was actually his education around, around movements, around struggle, right? The fact that like, you know, I still have his books, right? Like Mao and all of these folks that that they knew, you know, Khalil Gibran, people that you wouldn't necessarily think were revolutionaries in a certain sense, but these men were so incredibly in tune with um, with the language and the authority of the planet uh, as it as it related to liberation, both spiritually and physically. And I think that's so powerful too. So just the power of introducing the imagining even the way that the story is told and other black folks 
continue to take back these narratives, to take back these moments, and to put them in a framework that honors us, right? And doesn't continue to just hold us as these bodies to wait for. That's actually never what we're doing. We're always responding in kind to what is being asked of us and what is being forced on us, right? Start with more. That's not our food. It's mm-hmm. not food. Um, and so I just wanted to honor that. So, That's one of the things I just want to pick back up on something that Amani had shared with us previously. And she was saying when, they, when those brothers took that stand, that was the notion of freedom in that moment. And despite the uh, violent, uh, response, reaction, or what have you. Um, So I think that's a very important point. And so the idea of imagining the possibilities, or one of the things that Sadia Hartman talks about is uh, the idea of making possibility out of the unimaginable, if you will. Um, You know, and I'm paraphrasing it because she doesn't really kind of say that, but um, something like that. Right. So and I think that is the gift. That is the generosity and the love that Imani speaks about in which we can um, draw from and in a way to move forward. So even the efforts in terms of wage labor or what have you, I think that sort of um, misses the point. Because again, this is so if, if we're thinking about abolition as a entry point. We aren't talking about uh, wage labor or anything like that, because we know that prison reform is really um, prison expansion in that way. So expansion can never be reformed and vice versa. Um, So I think that we have to begin to really, um, you know, broaden our perspective in a way that um, helps us to 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 go forward. I was sharing with you guys that when I was incarcerated, it was the HIV. Now people are, you know, prisoners are fighting for their lives, COVID-19. So it's 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 huge in that way. So again, coming back to this, can I live in a way, you know, that sort of vernacular, if you will. I wanted to pick up on this question that both of you all are elaborating really beautifully about imagination, because I think you hear that a lot now, right? People, when they're getting into abolitionist politics or discussing abolitionist politics, they talk about, you know, the importance of imagination, which is absolutely right. And the Attica brothers did that. And they went a step further than that, which is to say they actualized it, right? So they're imagining and they're also engaging in a praxis of building it. And Imani is absolutely right that they were not wagers of war. They didn't wage the war, right? They were responding to a war that was imposed upon them and upon all of and upon all of us. So, you know, they were engaging in a form of counter-war. Um, but what they did once they created that space for themselves is uh, exactly the kind of creative activity that you all are talking about, right? Which is um, to actually build a really small version of a different kind of world that actually, Uh I think, 
people talk about the Attica demands, I think that's actually the demand. I think that's the demand. It's a demand for another right. world. It's not a demand for, you know, more toilet paper. It's not a, it's as important as that is, right? right. That, that, that if we read the rebellion as a text itself that includes demands that are about actualization, then we'll see, right, that they're actually posing a revolutionary demand for uh, the transformation of the the whole social order, right? Um, And I think this is actually how we need to read it, because then we see that, you know, then we can actually read the labor question in a different kind of way, because once they got control of D-Yard, the brothers engaged in all different kinds of labor, right? They started building defenses, they changed their forms of dress, which some people say was like to disguise themselves. But part of it is, I think they were expressing new kinds of identities in different kinds of ways, right? Um, They created uh, a medical bay for medical care. They did all of these things of their own accord. There was not, that no one was forcing them to do that. No one paid them to do it. They chose to do that. So this is a different kind of labor. So in this case, it's not, you know, like, how can we link Attica up with the labor movement? It's really uh, a demand on the labor movement to actually read labor in a radically different way. Um, And the other thing I'll point out, and Angela Davis wrote about this in an op-ed, she said that Attica evoked an image of the Paris Commune and liberated territories of Mozambique and these other kinds of things, right? Which gets at these the kind of ex- expansive, imaginative dimensions of the rebellion that you all are talking about. And it just so happens that Attica occurred on the centennial of the Paris Commune, right? So it's a hundred year anniversary of the Paris Commune. And I think that what Marx said about the Paris Commune, that what's important about it is its own working existence is what we should also be saying about Attica. What's important about Attica is what the Attica brothers did. We can read what they wrote, but like, let's actually read itself as a text and as a demand. Um, and, and George Jackson also gets into this when throughout blood and blood in my eye, he talks about the need to build the black commune. That's what they did. They built the black commune, right? But then the question of war comes back in. So they didn't declare war. But the question of war comes back in because what Jackson was saying is that as soon as we build the black commune and that black commune poses a threat to the dominant social order, they're going to attack us. And we have to be in a position to defend ourselves. Right. And um, that's that's one of the lessons of Attica, you know, that that once you make that positive revolutionary demand, the state is going to come down on us as hard as they can with everything they have. And we need to be prepared for that. Wow. Yeah, I, <laughs> let me just say that I think that they were, which is powerful. I think that they knew that if people, the way that they were reflecting, that they understood that their blood would be the gift, right? That we would 49, the hope would be that 49 years later, we would still be trying to reimagine what was happening, recreate what, you know, like Matt, like like honor the lessons, right? Hold the sacred space for the lost. Um, and, and that's such a powerful declaration of one's humanity, right? To do what's required in a moment, knowing 
that it may cost you never seeing what happened and trusting, intuitively knowing that when you leave this space, that your space gets to occupy the space available forever, right? Like they're here. So they always are here to continue to remind us, keep looking at that. You know, and I know people are like, oh, she going to go left with the spirit. But it's like, I know my dad is present all the time. I know that the brothers are available all the time. And I know that when we call them up, that we have a lot of choice about what we can ask from them. And I feel that when we're in these conversations and move, you know, the organic conversation that was happening was not just all of us. Right. It was the fact that we were in tune and that we then were present to the energy that was there that day. New thought. That is the thought that was available that day. Mm. And like that, that's just so that we as individuals want to remember that that is the legacy of our ancestry on the planet is that level of wisdom of understanding that we're tied in in that way. Um, and that that is that, that we are always in communication. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, that spirit definitely travels everywhere because I remember, um, like like you mentioned, Ori, people who were transferred out of Attica after the massacre, some were transferred to Green Haven Correctional Facility, which is where I was at. In fact, Eddie Ellis, who was at the Attica uprising, was transferred to Green Haven, and it was there they started the Green Haven think tank that, and which, and also, when I got there in 1990, like 1999, there was some organizing happening around another strike for the strikes. And I was a part of that strike. And it was, it demands the same demands, like, so the conditions climate, the waves, so the spirit of those brothers traveled to Green Haven and to other prisons throughout New York State. So, so Robin, like, what comes what comes to your mind? I see you think, I see the brainstorm of other things. <laughs> you see the, you see the smoke. <laughs> what's, 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 what's coming to your mind? Talk to us. Well, I was just thinking because again, I'm in the middle of writing this dissertation. So, one of the pieces that I talk about is the Green Haven Think Tank, and because I was really fortunate to work with Eddie for a number of years um, on account. Um, so when so this idea of knowledge production, that's where I'm kind of going with this and what's recognized as legitimate, illegitimate knowledge and what have you. And this sort of circles back to what Ori was talking about as well. And so how this think tank was able to map the seven neighborhoods in which all mostly all incarcerated folks, imprisoned folks come from. That original seven has since expanded, but without any real tools or GIS or what have you, it was amazing in terms of what uh, these guys were able to do. So um, again, circling back to this radical imagination, if you will, um, because that had not been done. And subsequently, Eric Cadora and Susan Tucker, the uh, OSI folks, Soros, or what have you, kind of, we were talking about co-optation and the commodification, if you will. Um, so that just kind of comes to mind for me and how you guys were saying that spirit lives on. The spirit doesn't die. I mean, physically, these guys may not be here. And so when Imani is talking about 
uh, well, we could just ask them questions or what have you, you know, plug in or what have you. Um, I strongly believe that. I, I live that. And so um, that's what kind of comes to mind. So this idea of the testimonial or bearing witness, if you will, and how we continue to do so. So even though that was, so it's this idea of like how the past, the present and the future shows up at any given moment. It's just sort of, um, it's always here with us. So that's what I think about. And so as I'm writing this dissertation, um, as Ruthie says, it's a slog, but you know, nothing, is more important than being able to to do that. Because one of the things that I was thinking about, how the conversation around quote unquote mass incarceration had been flattened in a way that erased uh, incarcerated women, formerly and currently incarcerated women, because the focus was so much. And that's sort of, so we need to disrupt that, right? so this is what I'm talking about. So when I think about a labor of livingness, I think about one of my respondents and how she was not, she never saw her three children again because they were caught up in the system, you know. And so the carceral system isn't just the prison, right? Um, you know, and so how these other forms of uh, carcerality or the conditions of confinement play out. So. And she recently passed. Um, I was sort of like devastated because she didn't get the chance to see me finish the dissertation and what have you. But by the time we finished that interview, she and I were just like both boohooing. I mean, just really. So even this notion of objectivity and subjectivity or whatever. um, So there's so much when we think about the law, Samani, but there's so many gifts. To, to to piggyback on what she was saying, that lives today. Um, and I think that's really the takeaway when I think about Attica and freedom movement, freedom dreams, so on and so forth. So that's kind of, so I don't think, so, so this idea of reimagination, um, I'm going to prison, I don't want to get paid more. I don't even want to go to prison. You feel me? I, I'm just like, so I remember when I couldn't even wrap my brain around abolition and we had Ruthie Gilmore because I wanted to know what that was all about. And, um, and it turns out that Eddie and Ruthie were great friends. I was sort of like, yo, Eddie, you got to meet this woman. This is this, this <laughs> scholar. She's brilliant. But forget about it. I was really the new kid on the block. So that is the legacy for me that allows me to kind of tap in and draw from um, the love, the strength, the generosity. Um, so that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ori, thoughts, money. I mean, I'll just say that I think that this is this way of talking about Attica as a way actually to talk more broadly about, you know, Black radical politics and social transformation is so powerful and so necessary, especially on this day, which is the day of a massacre, which at the time was the single bloodiest day on U.S. soil 
other than the Wounded Knee Massacre, right? Another instance of colonial warfare. Talking about it in this way um, is so important because I think it's really problematic how people could be talking about Attica, but actually talking about different things. And oftentimes when people are talking about Attica, they're talking about the massacre, um, which should be discussed, right? But I think it's really dangerous to allow the, um, the profound nature of the violence and abuse to overshadow these dimensions, these radical and proto-revolutionary dimensions of um, self-activity, self-imagining and actualization that we're talking about. So I'm, I'm just grateful that we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And today is also the, the B-Day of Geronimo Pratt, who was a political prisoner. Mm-hmm. And, that makes, and that makes me think about, like, you know, we just last month, um, Black August, you know, there was a segment in, uh, for the hip-hop Black August um, 2020 uh, event where they was basically giving a mic to, you know, former political prisoners that's actually still fighting for the people on the inside. You know, like we have political prisoners right here in New York, you know, Jalil Mutakin, you know, we've been people fighting for. So, you know, what comes to mind, you know, uh, Imani, like, you know, when you think about, uh, like what was said about, you know, the sacrifice and the spirit and, you know, the people on the inside, like the man, the, portal, the revolutionary, Black radical politics, you know, like it's still, it's still like always think about like what, you know, in the abolitionist community, like some people think Asada Shakur got out on a, on a, on a, on a clemency uh, campaign or something. She, her comrade took the abolitionist move that Javier Tubman did, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, what's the world come to mind, Imani? I mean, I, I- I think to be totally transparent, when I watch um, some of the acts of rebellion that we have right now, I actually become quite fearful um, because there's been such a massive militarization of the forces of uh, oppression, uh, police and otherwise, that I worry about bodies. Um, and I think that that's offline when I when I think about Attica now, I really did think about the ways in which my my father's body um, before, right, and kind of all of the ways in which as he transition, not having body fat and muscle mass really really uh, caused a lot of discomfort around bullets that had been kind of quietly tucked away for a long time, you know, or the fact that he could never have an MRI, even though we needed one because of how much buckshot was in his chest and back cavity. Um, And so one of the things that concerns me, I think, is that I think that um, I don't think that uh, that I would push for armed struggle at this point, because I feel that actually the key to liberation at this point actually is going to happen through healing and self-actualization, as crazy as that may sound. I really feel the next phase of what my father was going to try to do when he came home and he wasn't well enough to do it. I actually feel that the consequences of things like Attica and of prison um, really by design so so detach us from our creative energy and from ourselves and from one another that that I feel is much more the point. And so I, I feel like the lesson that was learned was really that um, that we give up the notion that we will get free in the next lifetime, that liberation is ours to actualize in this lifetime 
And that the way that we do that is by actually releasing ourselves from those things that were designed to be oppressive, right? So resting, right? So actually going back to the earth and the land, being in the water, um, participating actively with our children and with one another, beginning to learn how to speak and engage with one another again, beginning to introduce safe touch to folks again, really being face to face, nose to nose, breath to breath with one another in ways that we always were. Um, and so watching like the momentum on the street as I, and both inside prison, like I know where that fire comes from and I love that it's still active. And I want us to be less willing to use our bodies um, to die. I, I want us to reimagine rebellion as something that is really about liberation actualized in the body, in the flesh. Um, so I definitely was raised by a father who felt like my son Paul, somebody might got to get up and keep shooting. Like he was definitely a Che lover. And, 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 I, and I'm not going to pretend, I would never pretend that we were not raised within um, a very militant uh, <laughs> household. Um, you know, do what's required, but, but he never wanted us to feel what he felt. He felt like he took it so we didn't have to. And I feel that it's very important that we remember that. Um, I, I don't know any of the brothers, like I grew up with Geronimo too, before he got smart and got out of here, um, like all the way cut out of the United States. But like, I grew up with all of them and I feel like they were so protective of our bodies. They felt so sure that we had all of that so that we have to put our bodies in the, line, in, in the same way. And I almost feel like when I'm careless with myself, when I was, right, when I was on the street organizing, and me to carry his lessons forward, right, and me to have babies and teach them how to get free, right? So... So, 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 so there's the ways in which I think we, we honestly want to often rebel in ways that are actionable. And, and we look to our heroes who are willing to do that. But I think that we miss the fact that in those quiet conversations that I had with my uncle Eddie Ellis or with Black, they were always, don't do that, you're going to fall. Don't bump your face. Don't scratch. Like, they were the most, like, don't get hurt. You are our liberation on the planet. Right? And I just, I want us to hold on to that. I want us to not be so willing. I want us to reimagine the ways in which we rebel. And I want us mm. to do healing, honestly. I think that's what they would have wanted. Wow. Yeah, Robin, what do you say? What do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, no words. I mean, I just think that that is just so powerful. And even the notion, say, for example, entering the academy, I was like, um, yeah, I'm going to change the academy. But really, the academy changed me in a way that made me um, more in touch and actualizing myself. So how we rebel takes on it's, it's so multidimensional and it's multilayered. Um, I was thinking about Eddie and Eddie used to say, if you're ready, you ain't got to get ready, right? That was his famous. And um, so I just feel really grateful to take part in this conversation with such brilliant minds and um, and also 
again, circling back to the legacy, um, the legacy lives, right? It is not something that's dormant or dead or whatever. It, it, it takes on different shape. It takes on a different form. And whatever the lessons are or were, and how do we draw from that and apply it to now, um, this particular moment. So um, that's really um, heartfelt, if you will. And that's what I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's brought up like this particular moment. So as a, before we go to the Q&A, you know, one last question for everyone. And we can, we can start with, with Ori and then go to Robin and then Imani to end it. Um, so what does Attica mean, you know, to this particular moment? Hmm. I mean, I think I think what we've been talking about is how it means a, a lot of different things, right? Um, and how it can be taken up in different ways. I mean, clearly, it's very much resonant uh, with incarcerated people today who've been organizing a se- series of um, national prison strikes um, to coincide with Attica and uh, with, you know, the assassination of George Jackson, which to me indicates that these events don't just represent repression. They actually represent what Robin was just talking about, an an archive of inspiration that can be drawn on in various different ways. Um, I think um, I think for me, it represents what is possible. When people organize and work together, I mean, you know, the the brilliant creative genius that occurred in D Yard spontaneously over the course of that four days tells me that you know people can really um, exceed themselves, exceed right. their limitations collectively um under 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 duress right that 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 can happen and so for me that's really i'm i'm constantly thinking about okay well how, how can that level of um money called it you know like a, a a single-minded determination unity and collectivity how can that be reproduced uh in small ways you know across different domains of social life because that's really what we need i mean that's what we need that the kind of communalism and um self-determination that were demonstrated in the yard that's what that's what we need everyone to be doing at this exact moment right so i think i think that's the the question for me i would have to agree with ori in terms of this notion and again tying into what we've all said or whatever, this idea of self-determination and that one has the wherewithal, the power to do so. It requires incredible focus. I mean, considering the the, uh, oppressive nature of this nation, if you will, um, but still we move forward. We, uh, I don't know so much about persevere, but we just we we keep it we keep it moving. <laughs> We're persevering. Yeah. Um. 
So Attica, Attica means fight back is not actually the quote that I'm most used to. Um, Attica is all of us is actually the mm-hmm. quote that I'm most used to. And um, to me, like, it's actually quite telling because I've, all the movements now with social media, there is this way in which the drive is always to connect the personal, the individual, the small group to the collective. And the power of Attica is all of us was that it was tying people to the understanding that Attica was a microcosm of what was happening both everywhere, nationally, nice. globally. And so when I think about all Attica is all of us, what, what I then in this state of my life, in this stage of my life, believe is that Attica really meant union. Um, it meant the coming together of the collective consciousness. Mm. They were actualizing liberation in their minds. And then they produced a result that would actually liberate us in ways for eternity, because there will never be a class that studies this country um, and rebellion in this country that isn't going to have to contend with what happened on September 13th, 1971. Um, And as long as we continue to, as I said on that call, be the be the bodies that hold the sacred space for their bodies and their memory, um, then we continue to create union out of it. And I, because we were talking about labor and union, I, like it, it all actually came together for me in this conversation. Is that what that means when you say it's all of us? Means that Attica means union. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. Man. I haven't lost hope. <laughs> so if I could walk that back in terms of the perseverance or whatever. Um, but sometimes it's fraught. So. Yes, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So before we go to the Q&A questions from the audience, you know, I want to reiterate the importance of 13 Forward in this moment. You know, the demand for labor rights in New York State are almost 50 years old now. 13 Forward like seeks to fulfill these those demands. If you have participated in this webinar, you will be receiving an email that will allow you to follow and join the campaign 13 Forward. So for, for, for more information, you know, you could contact Work Rises community coordinator, Martin Garcia. His email will be dropped in, in the chat. And remember, you know, the Attica means fight back. So we're going to take a couple of questions. And the first question that I have here, like, hit me hard because it was like, it just, it came, it was something I've been thinking about, you know, while, while Imani was speaking. And this question let me preface it with this. You know, I'm learning a lot about like uh, abolition, restorative justice, and like my experience being incarcerated and, and the, what I experienced, like I don't want to do no restorative justice with no prison guards and cops, you know? <laughs> and like at this moment where I'm at right now, <laughs> you know? But, but, this is the que- but this is the question though. Like when you talk about healing, what do you mean? Imani, like when folks, where can folks start? What can you share about how trauma impacts us and how we can address that impact? Um, So one thing that I just want to offer you, Darren, is that everyone isn't required to do everything. One of the things Mm -hmm. that day was that people did what they were good at doing, right? So people weren't setting up the medical bay who had never learned how to tie a tourniquet or were uncomfortable with blood, right? Folks stepped into the roles that they were uniquely divinely created to step into that day, right? And so one of the things is, is like, I've spent a lot of time working with 
the Oakland Police Department, the NYP. Like there, are, there have been moments in my life when I've been willing to work with corrections and police and all of that because I was the voice that they could hear. And so mm. I was called to do that, right? Um, so one thing is really to, that this is the time, this to interrogate our gifts and our purpose, not just our passion, but what did we come to earth to do? And mm. if in fact, it's in alignment with that, then you're the right person to do those things. But if you feel like that don't work for you, then you're not the right one and you should never enter into those relationships because you won't be productive, right? Um, and so that's part of it is like, you know, work is an offering, service is an offering. And if, if, if we're not called to serve the people that we're in work with, then it's like, we're not effective. And so honor that, that's not your work and trust that somebody else will do it. And that's where the ego confuses us because it makes us think like, I'm smart. I'm in the room. I know the issues. I should be the one. No, honor the fact that somebody else came here to work with the police and let's find that person and give them a lot of love and support in doing that. Um, in terms of the healing work, the first place to start, you know, it's interesting. I think the first thing is to really understand that the ways that trauma impacts us the most, that's most concerning for me is that we, um, mostly operate in fight or flight mode that mostly we are doped up cortisol all the time. And I think that we don't understand um, the bodily impacts of that. I've been spending a lot of time studying brain science in preparation for the launch of Omawali. And one of the things that was most concerning to me was that um, we have been told this lie that, that because we're poor and we're black, that that's why we have the disproportionately high you know, rates of diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease and certain kinds of cancer. But the truth is that when you study cortisol overproduction in the body, it actually dismantles all of the same systems and causes all of the same results. So while they're telling us that we're eating poorly and we live in a poor neighborhood and we can't have good outcomes for ourselves and that it's our responsibility that we're sick, it's actually the stress of having unhealed trauma and being consistently traumatized by the forces that are um, oppressing us and weaponizing everything in our communities um, that actually I think is having the largest impact. So one of the things that I feel is the most important way is to begin to reconnect to the body. And we do that either through breath work, through exercise. Like I'm not one of those people that says go somewhere and sit under a tree somewhere. That is not a reality. For many of us, many of us are uncomfortable with our eyes closed. Um, mm. And the way that I actually start with most of the people that I work with is in walking meditation, in which the eyes are open and we are walking outside um, and we are experiencing the sensation um, and identifying the smells, the sounds, the tastes in our mouth, which muscles feel like they're tired. Um, because what it begins to do is it begins to offer us back to our senses. And one of the things that stress and trauma does is it really detaches us from being able to feel ourselves in our bodies. Um, but obviously actually deep dive with folks. I can't really do it in 20 seconds. Um, but I am absolutely on Instagram. Absolutely. I answer my DMs. I actually, all of my clients I've gotten through them literally reaching out to me through social media and being like, can you work with me? So I'm here to help anybody jumpstart the process. Okay, uh, so do folks like have any final final thoughts? You know, uh, or, or but actually one more question, and this is for Ori. So you know, so the question about like about the, the discussion about the demands, you know, demands from seventy one, demands from Folsom, demands. Um, 2018 national prison strike. You know, like when we were speaking previously um, about the liberation faction, you know, they stood unified among those demands. And 
when we talk about when we talk, you know, you, you talk about the trouble, the idea of how the demand were formulated. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I just think I think that we um, need to develop more of a capacious understanding of demands and develop our skills in reading demands um, and understanding that there are different modes of articulating a demand. I think people have a tendency to fixate on the written demands that were specifically issued to the state, right? So oftentimes when people are talking about the Attica demands, they're not even talking about the Attica Liberation Faction demands. They're talking about, I think it was the 28 demands that were Mm -hmm. accepted by the state. Those 28 demands were crafted in a back room with Oswald and some of the observers, not the left observers, they locked the left observers out of that room Oswald and the sort of like liberal right wing observers crafted those demands, most of which they had already developed anyway in response to the Auburn Rebellion. So those are not the Attica demands. Those are the state's demand. Those are the state's concessions to Mm. Black Rebellion. Okay, Um, the Attica Liberation Faction crafted demands prior to the rebellion. So like Imani said, this was their attempt to forestall the rebellion. Everyone knew that a rebellion was imminent and they were saying, look, y'all need to give us this or else something else is gonna happen. So please do this. And I think they say we're trying to do it in a democratic fashion or something like that. When Attica jumped off, the first set of demands that they wrote were the five immediate demands. And that's the one that includes federal oversight of the prison system, transport to a non-imperialist country, amnesty. They asked for they asked for the state to take the walls down. The internal walls of Attica, take them joints down. Right. Those are the ones when Herman Schwartz came in, he said, oh, these are unrealistic. And he gave it back to them. So then they crafted another set of demands, right? But just because they crafted another set of demands, and you know, there were negotiations over that other set of demands, doesn't mean that there weren't still people inside of Attica who were trying to push for the supposedly unreasonable demands. And I think I just think that you know we have a tendency to uh, disregard those demands that aren't addressed specifically to the state. In other words, I think some of the Attica brothers' demands were actually demands for communities who saw themselves in solidarity with Attica on the other side of the wall. Like, this is the demand to our brothers and sisters outside the wall. Like, this is what y'all need to make happen. And so I think we need to engage in a nimble and sophisticated reading practice of different demands in different contexts for different constituencies. And that's how we should actually read all demands, right? Like, people like to quote Martin Luther King, a riot is a language of the unheard. But like they don't go the next step and actually read the language. Like, let's actually read the discourse of the riot and figure out what it is they're trying to say through their activity. Right. So I just think that we should be doing that. I think we can't understand Attica if we don't do that. Thank you you have a question for Robin from your research and your own experience. What wisdom can we take forward as we work toward union? I really can't say anything more than what has been already said. 
But what I can tell you in terms of being a formerly incarcerated Black woman is where it was in the prison that I found union, right? And again, I quote this piece, again, it was about, you know, the HIV and so on and so forth and everything that came with that, the trauma, the stigma, what have you. But it was the women who whispered to each other, I'm not going to let you die, right? So that encapsulates... uh, in terms of what I discovered, not only about my peers, but about myself, right? Um, So it seems to me, yes, the idea of the causal conditions of confinement um, within the the walls, but um, it's also about how I carry that work forward in terms of my work outside the walls. And again, I continually go back inside the prisons, even though that particular day in March, many years ago, I said, I would never come back. Okay, they told me I only had to do this one time, right? Uh, And then of course, as Imani said, it's the call. And you go back because just like someone came back and not, to let me know that I had not been forgotten. Um, it is incumbent upon me. It obliges me to do the same. So um, when Imani talks about union, I learned about union in the prison. That was really a, a, a radical union, you know, given the circumstances of, um, you know, the custodial, custodial conditions. So I carry with I carry that with me today. Um, that's it. You know, there's this. That's it. I live that. Thank you so much for that. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, so we got about like ten to fifteen minutes left. I want every. I want to give everyone a chance to give us some, you know, some final thoughts. You know. You know everything that we was discussing, conversing about, and and sharing with each other. Like you know, can you give us each one of you give us some final thoughts? You know, for the for the audience. I guess I can just say that my my thought right now is just gratitude. You know, gratitude to all of you. Um, for participating, for people who are listening, for the our ancestors who engaged in this struggle and left this legacy for us to to carry on. Um, so that's my final thought. My final thought um, is perseverance. Right, you know, keep on keeping on, um, because as Amani, we reminded us, um, even before Attica, even before, I mean, this is, it's, it's from the beginning. And um, yes, I'm incredibly grateful um, to be here to, to uh, engage in this conversation and, and this practice, um, because I can tell you that when I went to prison, I thought life was over. It was a wrap. And um, it turns out that the opposite was true. 
And so here it is, 2020, and still sort of, you know, this path has taken me to different places or whatever, but um, it's, it's, it's still here. So again, to uh, think more about what Amani was talking about in terms of perseverance, sometimes I can be a little cynical and a little pessimistic, but um, I am the evidence, right? I am the living, I am the evidence of such. So um, yeah, you know, possibilities, reimagination. And um, yeah, I think that's that's it for me. So the cure, the cure for cynicism is a nap. And I want to- <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I learned that from this sister that runs this thing called the Nat Ministry. She's brilliant. Y'all should follow her. I think her name is Trisha Hersey. It's brilliant, this conversation about rest. Um, I think what I want to really express, since I'm the last one um, and my dad is looking on my shoulder, I want to express deep gratitude for the fact that y'all have kept um, the legacy of Attica alive and can you and continue to revisit and interrogate and honor it. Um, I think for those of us the babies of the revolution. One of the things that we contend with after our parents' transition is how much time we feel like we lost, mm. we were robbed of, um, and how much, how difficult it is when your parents make choices that make them belong more to the people than to you. Mm. And one of the ways that I continue to get healing about that is when I'm in spaces like this, where I can see the profound impact and contribution that his life and his service and his body and his comrades offered. Um, I think that, you know, the reason why we have eulogies and the reason why we have funerals and we always have had some version of that since the beginning of time is because what is most healing to a family who has had the loss of someone is hearing the ways in which that person offered light to the world and will be remembered and carried forth. And so for me, I express deep gratitude both to all of you and the organizers and Worth Rises and all of the folks who tuned in because you offer me the light of the fact that it was worth it, right? That, that his life meant something, that their lives, that Big Black meant something, that Akil will be remembered forever. You know, that Dalu, who, who died on the street a month before I was born, my dad will, that, that it was for something. Um, and... So I really honor the fact that in your interrogation and sometimes even curiosity that you offer healing to the children and families of folks who really lost more than probably most even understand that day. Um, mm. So much, right? Just by seeing the way Ori's face will light up, you know, when he reads something that my dad said, right? It's like he lives, you know? And I always say that, like, Jomo lives. and. Um, so just deep gratitude from me to all of you and to all of you that tuned in that you continue yeah. to carry on um, his life and his energy. And just to know that whenever you call on him, I can guarantee you he comes. That's his thing. Uh, and and just to remember that they're available to us. They're at the gate. They're waiting, you know, for their marching orders to carry us forward. Um, and, and and I'm here to just continue to encourage you to persevere because we we going to win this time. We get out and get free. <laughs> Absolutely. To everyone. I feel you. I feel Same you. Gratitude, healing. Listen, I, I tell you, because, you know, like over the course of my 20 years incarcerated, I was transferred to different prisons, you know, like I've been to like over 15 different prisons, state prisons in New York. 
And some, most of the time, I didn't know where I was going. And I prayed, I'm telling you, I prayed that I'd never go to Attica, you know? Because, like, I remember, like, even having a conversation with my mother. I was like, yo, it's going to be a problem if I go to Attica. Because a lot of the conditions that exist in the 71 still exist there. I think it's a hands-off Attica um, by the state because of what happened. And, they, and it, like, a lot of brutality still happens there. Because I know me, like, I'd rather be judged by 12 than they carried out by 6. So good, I'm glad I didn't land up there. But, you know, thank you, everyone, you know, for this, for being here and the healing. I definitely needed that, Imani. Um, I want to remind folks that 13 Forward, you know, is, is seeking to fulfill these demands. Um, and if you participate in this webinar, you know, you're going you're gonna to receive an email and, you know, join the campaign, you know, join the campaign. You definitely uh, contact Work Rises, Martin Garcia, who's the community coordinator. And, and remember that Attica means fight back. And um, thank you so much, Imani. Thank you much, so much, Ori. Thank you, Robin. Um, this is, this is, uh, I got a lot of notes over here. <laughs> and I'm going to watch this again. <laughs> So, so thank you so much, you know. Um, yeah, and I think that I think that's it, man. We got work to do. We got healing work to do. We got organizing work to do. You got that that got that book coming, or you got that PhD work to do, Robin. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I really appreciate everyone. You know, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode. Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.